This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest today cares deeply about social, economic, and environmental justice. He believes in collective movements and solutions rooted in the knowledge of local communities. He has collaborated on numerous community events and actions for public education, anti-poverty, economic justice, LGBTQ plus rights, and the environment. Michael Barkman is the current chair for Make Poverty History Manitoban Coalition. Michael Barkman, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you. Thanks, Stuart, so much for having me. So, Michael, how does somebody get involved and be so interested in advocating for education, in particular on the issue around making poverty history in Manitoba? I've been doing a lot of reflecting that very question, I guess. How does one come to be doing the work that they're doing? Especially, I want to say from the outset that I'm, I'm not somebody who's ever lived in poverty. I come from a family background of a whole heck of a lot of teachers. So comfortable, by no means, uh, you know, overly wealthy or anything, but uh, a lot of public servants in that way. Uh, but definitely a comfortable and a privileged background in many ways growing up in, in West Winnipeg. But one kind of piece, maybe the in a roundabout way, Stuart, answer your question that I've been chatting about with folks. I'm turning 28 soon, and I think I come from an interesting generation where a lot of social issues and environmental issues were certainly coming up, not saying that they weren't present in schools or education before that, but definitely in a really serious way from by the time I was an elementary school student, uh, from learning about recycling and the perils of the ozone layer to thinking about poverty, especially at a global lens, and maybe that's the difference. But I think something really interesting happened where we're still sort of figuring out how to teach young people about what to do about it. And I think at the same time, there was also an advent of a lot of social media just kind of starting out as a platform. I got my Facebook account when I was in grade seven, which is so weird to think about. And I think what happened was there was a lot of really interesting sort of individualistic almost or, or like kind of personality influenced activism at the time. So you know, you're a student and you can go out and you could change the world all by yourself. And I think it was maybe a harsh reality to become an adult and realize it's actually pretty hard to do that by yourself. You need other people with you. Yeah, I got really interested in sort of being able to do something for the community that I lived in, whether that's for, for folks who are very struggling in poverty or for the environment. But it was really, again, to answer your question around about way, it took me a while to realize, oh, we got to do that together in our own different ways, in our own different organizations and groups and communities. But it maybe took me a while to realize that the sort of maverick approach of one person with a social media account isn't going to be the change or the change of the world, as I was maybe thought when I was 16, 17. Well, fair enough. But I mean, it still was something that got you to where you are today. I mean, somebody has to, you have to start somewhere. And absolutely. And so from that perspective, Michael, was there anything that, uh, it's fascinating when you say you come from a sort of long history of family of, of teachers, because I think education is really what I want to talk to you a bit about when you talk about sort of collaboration. But before we get there, 
Is there anything at all that you viewed, you saw, you witnessed, you were a part of that really did have an impact and say, you know what, as an individual, I am going to start to see how I can be one of these people that advocates for change? I mean, I think in a really simple way, I was always kind of somebody who you know, was on my student council or involved in certain ways, but maybe that was more for sort of a social aspect. But really, when I saw the activism happening through the Students Association at the U of W, I was really enthralled. I really, yeah, found a place and a home. And I think that is really important. Maybe it fits into with what I said earlier is I think like people are drawn in often on on issues or on on things that maybe bother them on a personal basis, but I think they stick around in some of this work because of relationships. And that was really apparent to me that the friends that I made at a university level were a lot around the kind of work I was doing. But maybe a little bit deeper is um, I also, in my own journey of, of coming out, being comfortable as a, as a queer person, seeing a lot of the activism and history of activism of, of queer politics and queer organizing and really coming into a like a time where there was so much more acceptance than my you know predecessors in that movement 50 and 20 30 years before me so i mean i don't i don't think i would have said this at the time but now i really see that i have benefited in being able to come out being so accepted from the advocacy or activism on that issue from people before me so there's maybe a feeling of responsibility of trying to do what i can now so that 30 years from now maybe there's somebody who benefits Again, I don't think I would have said it in that way when I was first getting involved, but I had a sense of uh, responsibility. I'm sort of drawn to your comments about sort of getting a level of comfort and being uh, in a position to be open and to advocate for something. And when you're advocating, you know, whether it's your own personal lived experience, Michael, I think the notion always is there is those that will always, as you start to advocate, you realize there are those that are opposed. And so you're always talking in your bio and your background about collaborating. Did you have a challenge or have you, would you, can you share any challenges you've had when you've tried to collaborate on, on issues that are passionate to you? Because there are always others. And in many ways in a, in a democracy, there should be others on the other side. It's just how rigid sometimes they are on the other side. Can you share your, your thoughts on that? I think something I've been thinking a lot about and would love to. And another time here, two more, what you, what you might answer, because I think it is so important, especially right now, I mean, it's talked about much more broadly about polarization and sort of influence that social media might have on echo chambers or just going to look for the beliefs that we believe in. And I think I've been really trying and, and coming to terms with how important it is to yeah, collaborate, as you say, but maybe even before collaboration to just build relationship or conversation with those that aren't part of that echo chamber. Obviously hard to do in a time in which we're mostly at home on our computers and often not making the same kind of acquaintances or reaching out to new people as we might have. I think that, yeah, this is just something in the sort of groups that I'm involved with. At a real basic level, I think there's so much value in going to knock doors or make phone calls with people that we don't know very well. And I was really learned a lot when I went into the Elmwood area, which is a community, as I said, I grew up in West Winnipeg and I'm more familiar with that and, and living in the West End now, but it was knocking on doors in Elmwood to talk about the issues of climate change. And, you know, as someone who also spent a lot of time doing anti-poverty work, I just was really <laughs> 
forced to like kind of eat humble pie, so to speak, in terms of going door to door to talk or like even present these issues that made me feel far away. Or maybe I was talking about my own fears with climate change, as opposed to starting with asking people what they were feeling about it and that sort of thing. So it was really quite uh, like, as going to chat with new people always is quite really opened my eyes in many ways. But I think to me, it, it spoke to how it's important we think about how things are being messaged when we're talking about these things. And yeah, I was just really blown away with the sort of response we got. And, and then also, to be honest, like maybe the arguments at the door, because it felt so, I felt so passionate about what I was there for. And other people were passionate on many other different things. Um, but they were all good conversations. I learned a lot. Right. And so conversations are fantastic. And that's why I'm really delighted you're joining me on, on this podcast, Michael. Just go back for a moment. Did you say you were in Point Douglas at this time when you were door knocking? I was in Elmwood. In Elmwood, I'm sorry. Okay, so you're in Elmwood. Was there a political campaign going on or was there a particular reason that you were trying to find out about climate change? Yeah, I was uh, door knocking on behalf of a, a national campaign called Our Time. So it was kind of in partnership with a group called 350.org that was, as part of the federal election, organizing groups of young people, especially to organize in different ridings, especially ridings that were maybe swing or that sort of thing to go talk about the issues of climate change. So it was really under that banner of a national campaign to try and boost up that issue at election time. Yeah, again, like that feels like such a important one to have conversation and to bring it to people's lived realities, as opposed to feeling like a far away type of issue. And in the same vein, I, like that's something in my Make Poverty History work that we've been talking about a lot is how do we make sure that we're chatting with folks and bringing these issues for people who have never experienced poverty, who then maybe can think about how they're voting or how they're spending their money or how they're donating and consider some of those choices if they don't have that kind of lived experience. So it's kind of like bringing that to their, their doorstep or to their living room or whatever, and in a way they understand. Yeah. So Michael, you know, just because I've had some experience myself door knocking in, in previous careers, uh, kind of retail politics, I think is sometimes what it's called. But in this case, you know, it's a, you're at a doorstep, you're, you're having a face-to-face conversation with a, a person, a family. How has that impacted, you know, from your perspective with COVID? I mean, you know, here we are, we're talking by Zoom, we can't sit across the table from one another. So in terms of trying to get out in front of some of these issues and and particularly on an educational basis that you're trying to explain or you're trying to bring information forward, how would you say COVID has impacted that ability to, to what you're doing then of what you sort of see on the political horizon? But then I want to talk about your ability as you're trying to educate people in a collaborative way around make poverty history in Manitoba. I think it's been really hard. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of creativity that's gone into things that I've worked on or things that the groups that or people I collaborate with have worked on. But all, all in all, I think it's just very challenging, particularly for the reasons that we've been talking about, that to make sure that conversations, as much as they moved online, don't just revolve around the same people or involve the same kind of echo chamber, to use that word again, over and over. And that feels particularly challenging right now to bring the the groups or the communities or the uh, organizations or the individuals into something. You know, to to give an example, we had an event for Make Poverty History at the beginning of April of this year um, around homelessness in Winnipeg. And really, it was our intent to try and bring people who were increasingly concerned about homelessness when it was very, very cold this past winter 
uh, and invite them into a conversation about long-term or systemic change to end homelessness, as opposed to just only maybe being concerned when it's minus 40 overnight, and then otherwise being something that we forget about. And it was a, a thing that we really had to rack our minds as a group. Like, how do we actually accomplish that goal of reaching those people? or those communities. I think we did some interesting or creative things to do some targeted or strategic outreach through ways that people organize themselves all over the city or all over the province and in their daycare centers, in their local, you know, uh, rotary club or, or those sorts of things. There's all sorts of ways humans, we organize ourselves. So if we can be a bit strategic, maybe about making some of those relationships. I think that reaches wider networks. But yeah, overall, I would say to answer your question, it's certainly been a challenge uh, because we've relied so much on social media through the pandemic, which has been both a blessing, obviously, to remain connected. But I think in many ways, has also emphasized some of those those silos that we might exist in. And it can be a bit more challenging to break them down and, and collaborate or, or at least just uh, learn from each other. I, I want to talk a little bit about collaboration. It's something, obviously, that you are very focused on. And if you look at your your work that you have been involved in and as you're still a young man at 28, I mean, you've done a tremendous amount. So your runway in front of you, thank goodness for society is going to be great. So thank you for what you've done. And I know what you will do, Michael, but you know, collaboration at a time of COVID, you know, is also another challenge. And I, I'd just be very interested to kind of get your sense of some of the innovative things that you've, you've seen that have worked and maybe some of the things that you've tried that maybe wouldn't necessarily do again. Yeah, well, I w- definitely, and thanks for, for those kind words, and, and absolutely that collaboration is a huge part of, I mean, it really harkens back to what I said initially, that I believe so strongly that we won't achieve the change we want to if we try and do it alone. You know, there's that very good expression of if you want to go fast, go alone, and if you want to go far, go together, of which the origins, there's a lot of dispute where it comes from. But I think that the sentiment is really true for me. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. My paid work is with a a group called the Canadian Community Economic Development Network. So really happily, I can kind of put these principles of collaboration to work through my my paid job, which is bringing together a network of community-based organizations, of social enterprises, and of cooperatives, and others who are interested in, in local fair economic development. Of which that, you know, there's a concern too about addressing poverty. So there's been some, I mean, it's not necessarily been the work that I've been involved with, but more members of our network doing collaboration through this pandemic that I think is really, really inspiring. You know, the the province uh, was trying to house folks who were homeless to try and make sure there were spaces for, for people to isolate. And they were able to purchase or renovate, sorry, I should say, a Manitoba housing building and the group that did that renovation is called Purpose Construction, which is a local social enterprise who is able then to employ, they employ people with barriers to employment, whether they've been incarcerated, whether they're newcomers and maybe face some language barriers, or whether they've been through the child and family services and, and have other barriers to employment. So I thought that was just so awesome that this company that is employing these people, that people can have access to good work, to meaningful work that pays enough so they can support themselves. But they maybe been through or they maybe would have needed something like this, uh, this immediate housing 10 or 15 years ago, or even five years ago for themselves. Another really cool example was three different social enterprises worked together to sell masks that were made by uh, the Cutting Edge program, the Canadian Muslim Women's Institute. They worked together with another company called Local Investment Towards Employment, or LIGHT, 
to produce these masks. Again, it was made either by newcomer women or other folks with barriers to employment. And then they were sold at Pollock's Hardware Co-op, which if you've seen in the news has been struggling. And then there's you know, a local cooperative that, like many, would be impacted by the pandemic. Just thought it awesome. Another example of collaboration. Then definitely more on the, on the sort of advocacy or activism side. I think lots of great instances of collaboration. We host an annual conference called The Gathering in, uh, in the fall, and we host it all on Zoom this year. And people were really, really delighted still to join each other, to even talk about what collaboration looks like and how to do it. It's not just a thing that happens. It's a skill uh, that can be worked on. Yeah, that was really awesome to have this, uh, this whole virtual big event with hundreds of folks join, even though it was just all on Zoom. And there's so many ripples of collaboration, I think, just by a chance at a container to bring people in. Yeah, and I, you know, want to sort of get to kind of our topic today about making poverty history in Manitoba. You know, Michael, you've obviously had involvement in a lot of social, economic, and justice issues that have been of interest to you. What got you interested in making Manitoba or making poverty history in Manitoba? Again, kind of on this maybe learning journey of mine to really, as I've said many times now, think about the importance of collective work. I was also maybe thinking about what's my position in that. Again, as someone with relatively lots of privilege in my life, I got involved quite a bit with student, as I said, to the student organizing and then was actually part of our, our national students union for a few years, which to me felt like a really useful experience as a student, but I can also contribute some of my time to helping out the people I see around me, which at that time were other students. I also was really then keen to join with the groups, which was already formed, Make Poverty History Manitoba, knowing at the time, because I was so invested in student organizing and and helping students, the particularly issues or impacts of of poverty and, and being a student. So I got involved with that group, but it was definitely because of the people or relationships that I built through, uh, through my classes. I, was, uh, I graduated with a political science degree from University of Winnipeg, but I did a lot of classes in urban and inner city studies. And if uh, people haven't heard of the department or the program, I think it's a really awesome, fairly new program at U of W that is right now has a new beautiful building on Selkirk Avenue, the Merchant's Corner. When I went there, it was a tiny, dingy <laughs> department in the basement where you'd hear kids running around in the daycare above. And it was just awesome to make relationships with a ton of different people in that department. I would ride over the Arlington Bridge from my, my place in, uh, in the West End at the time into the North End and join students who were coming right and walking from their homes in that community. And there was a lot of sharing, a lot of you know, history about people's cultural and social backgrounds and economic backgrounds. Anyways, so that my sort of experience there in meeting students with lived experience of poverty currently while trying to study being parents at the same time too. Um, I felt like that was a, a lens or an important angle that I had to bring to my activism as a, as a student organizer. Anyways, that led me to make poverty history. And I felt, again, like a responsibility to maintain my uh, help in that organization and that group that brings together both people with and without lived experience of poverty. And then I wanted to make a commitment to, to be there for a while because it's a long, 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 long-term issues that we're working on that can't just be resolved in a year or two. So Michael, as you're looking at making poverty history and, and, and the things that go along with it, is there 
have you seen where there's been levels of success in other communities that you can sort of draw upon that experience to sort of look at how that can impact? I mean, every community is different and Winnipeg is different than Toronto is different than Chicago, et cetera. So, but is there something that, that you've been able to, in the organization, been able to glean? And I'll, I'll, I'll ask you it because I'm asking it in this context. I'd like you to think about or answer if you could. The notion that, because you know, some of your stuff in your website is very robust, by the way, there's some great information on your website, which we'll give out to at the end of this uh, program. You, you want to obviously get involved in changing policy, you know, that, cause that's important to look at how you change policy. So in the context of my question, Michael, it, would you see bringing levels of success if there are other communities to help advance the change of policy? Or do you need the change of policy to try to show the levels of success? Are you thinking about specifically like whether it's almost maybe, a, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but uh, in terms of when we adopt or, or in the stages of innovation, if we're early adopters or might we be, I'm talking we as in Manitoba or Winnipeg. And, and just getting a sense, Michael, if, if, if there's anything that the organization may have had a sense of a community that has been able to a adopt, whether it's civic policy on ending poverty or provincial or whatever, that allows at least a framework to sort of start. Otherwise, you know, starting from from scratch, if 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 that's appropriate to say it that way. I mean, one thing I'm particularly proud of in our work is we have been very provincially focused, but maybe about four years ago, some of our members for Make Property History went to a conference in Edmonton. Uh, and learned a lot about what the city of Edmonton is doing to end poverty. And they have a pretty comprehensive strategy. They have a, an organization that they fund called End Poverty Edmonton. They have some really important connections drawn between the work to end poverty and the work to end racism. And that work of anti-racism is, is really key in what the city of Edmonton's strategy calls game changers to end poverty. So we were really inspired by that work in Edmonton and ran a campaign here in Winnipeg to do the same, to say the city, though it doesn't have all the powers, obviously, it does have certain role. It has a mandate that it must care for the welfare of its citizens, including those living in poverty. And on top of that, we spend a lot of money as a city on emergency services that are, in my mind, really related to the root causes of poverty. So we were successful in the city now is, is we've been working, co-creating with them a, a poverty reduction strategy. And absolutely, we've been looking to other jurisdictions where we see those comprehensive ideas in place. They really need leadership and champions and elected officials to say, yeah, like we have a role, even though we're just the city, but we do have a role in zoning. And that includes for housing. And we have a role in transportation of which a lot of low-income people use, and we have a role in recreation, and we can do things to make sure those recreation services are as accessible as they can be, many other different things. And we've also looked at other cities, and, and I, I don't know enough about the, the details exactly, but there are definitely exciting stories about whether it's Medicine Hat and, and other places that have, the headline really reads, ended homelessness, which I think is, is exciting. In my mind always needs some deep analysis to make sure that issue is so uh, varied in what it looks like. But I think there's so much to glean from those places when sometimes the simple approaches are taken of homelessness is about folks not having access to a safe, uh, accessible place to live. We can do that as, as a society to provide that. Maybe it's a little bit easier than we think. It's not definitely easy. There's lots of complex complexity to it. But if we put some attention to it, it's maybe possible to solve it. Yeah. And 
you know, your reference on ending homelessness in, and they tied me in, in medicine hat. Um, I had spoken to, I guess now the former uh, CEO of, of end homelessness and she had told me about medicine hat. So there's a success story there. And I guess one of the things I thought was interesting with her comment was how, again, going back to something that's interested you, Michael, is collaboration and getting people together. And so you, you know, you have a make poverty history, you have end homelessness, Winnipeg, you have these organizations, but clearly the crossover and the intersection of all of this must be uh, paramount to, to finding success. And I just wondered if you could comment on how some of those opportunities of working together with some of those organizations, because you're, they're not siloed. These are, are very much a part of sort of a basic fundamental human need and a human right. Speaking to maybe the importance then of collaboration, that I actually think that this is something that uh, Winnipeg in particular and Manitoba is really good at. I think maybe as a place where there's not the same amount of resources when it comes to supporting the kind of groups to help address poverty or to help do community development or do social innovation sort of work might not be the same amount as Toronto or Vancouver in terms of resources. I think that maybe resource scarcity (laughs) allows us to know we need to work together. So I would say in in general that I think it's a place where there's a lot of deep collaboration and that history runs really long in terms of working on these things collectively. I think there's still a need, of course, for people to be focused and, and I mean, I said earlier, there's maybe some simplicity to some of tackling some of these big uh, problems, which is true in one sense and also totally wrong in another. Like there's so many different barriers or complexity to even to addressing homelessness, let alone to that poverty is not just homelessness. It can exist in many different ways. So a group like in Homelessness Winnipeg being pretty laser focused on a geographic area and a, an issue like that, I think is so crucial because they're able to get the people they need around the table and collaborate. And we work with them too. We just, we, that event I was referencing earlier uh, at the beginning of April, we co-hosted with them and another group, Right to Housing Coalition, which is a, another example of like collaborative work. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience working closely in other jurisdictions, but from being part of a national network, that's often a comment made about Manitoba, is we're pretty good at, at collaborating on some of the shared concerns and some of the shared solutions that we have. So, Michael, what would you say if you had to walk into, now, now I'm, I'm post-COVID, so now you're having an audience and you're going into an audience, and the first question that came to you was, in your capacity as, as chair to poverty history in Manitoba, what is the first thing you would like us to either A, know, or what would you like us to do? I think I've been thinking about this a lot, but also maybe not enough because it's hard that we like pretty quickly started thinking about recovery. We're still so clearly in response mode. So I really appreciate the question. First, a no, I think it's really important. And I think it is getting out there in a really amazing way is the um, disproportionate impact of covid whether the virus itself or economically on certain communities or populations over others. And I actually think that there's like that sort of an equity lens, if I can say that, applied to what this pandemic has looked like in our society is actually pretty prevalent. I think there's a broad understanding that it affected people in certain sectors from who lost their job or who are more vulnerable to get it. And that looks more often like women 
or racialized communities or new immigrants or indigenous people or people with disabilities. And then we also know, and there's been a lot of discussion about this, that the virus itself is, is harder or worse for people with, for, than some, for some than others. So I think that's, to me, an amazing and very fertile ground to build a conversation in which we need a response to COVID that is also equitable or based in an equitable approach. And so that feels exciting to me, that there's at least we're not totally fighting that we like don't understand at all who, how, who this pandemic impacted. The things that are, yeah, interesting me, there I think will be, it depends, of course, on the who's in government or their approach, definitely. But regardless, I think there will be a rush of, of spending in some way. And my hope is that that spending, whether it's on infrastructure projects or or in other sort of income programs, really importantly has that equity lens first and foremost, that we need to make sure whatever programs are done to recover from this, support those who most need it. So that includes a gender-based lens and a lens on indigeneity and a lens on for newcomer people. Yeah, so there's like there's to me some really exciting things that I think are coming out of other jurisdictions and ideas here about smart stimulus spending. I'm really interested in ideas around social procurement, which if you'd asked me three years ago if I would care about that, I would have told you what is procurement, but real basically that like we're going to be spending government a bunch of money on goods and services. Can we make sure that even part of that, uh, the companies that are doing that work are also helping to address poverty or giving a job to people who maybe lost it during COVID. And then at the same time, I think, as we know, there's obviously a huge amount of dialogue around and ideas of basic income or guaranteed income or better standards in terms of social assistance. And that to me is the other piece that must be essential in a recovery. We saw the huge benefit that CERB as an income provided by government provided, and that was so necessary in an emergency. I think we have a really archaic system of, of income supports in the whole country. I think about that most in terms of provincially here. Manitoba has not increased our social assistance rates in a long time. But also, to be honest, I think that the program is not only tired, I think that it has a lot of uh, elements of coloni- colonialism that still exist to it. And I think that we could do a lot to reimagine those sorts of programs so that they're supportive they give pathways to people to access meaningful employment. And then we have those other things around smart, smart spending and smart stimulus that is really an equitable approach. So they complement each other. I'd love to explore with you for a second, Michael, the thought about, you know, how, how to make change. And when you look at certain governments, you know, there's programs that exist that, as you say, they're archaic, uh, potentially built around colonialism. Do you have some thoughts on how that might change? Because I really think one of the challenges of trying to make change is that you know, people do things a certain way and they fund things a certain way. And those things have been happening year after year, decade after decade. And so, you know, the notion of saying, okay, you know, maybe when it started, it was a good program because it was something of necessity. But, you know, as, as the world has changed and as we've learned these changes, how can we reimagine some of these issues. And so I'd love to, can you share some of your thoughts on how you might take some of the, the arcane parts of, of maybe what policy and government and maybe try and change that? Yes, for sure. And, and thanks too, for, I think it's important when I'm talking this way too, to remind where the history of some of these come from in terms of where our welfare state built and totally that the importance that they've had 
two stories that for me really clued me into when I specifically thinking about the income and social assistance programs in our country. One is a story actually in, in Sean Loney's book, who's a social enterprise and entrepreneur and, and creator and been really important in the community economic development space. And in his book, he talks about the experience in, uh, in Garden Hill First Nation, yeah, I'm, uh, where it's like very common, like people receive in the community who are receiving welfare or employment and income assistance checks, uh, receive that from the government. They have to pay to take uh, a ferry to the island where the northern store is located. And that, of course, is still owned by the Norwest Company, where people spend money on food that we know very well, the astronomical costs of food in the north, and then have to pay for the ferry back. And basically, by the time that's done, the welfare check is gone. To me, that like really opened my eyes to where that money is going in this concept that's often talked about in community economic development of a leaky bucket. So money comes in the community and it just like totally sifts out. It goes to the Northwest company or it goes to whomever's operating the, the ferry and it doesn't stay in the community. The other example of the welfare <laughs> world that really opened my eyes is what people talk about as a welfare wall. And I didn't know this, and I don't think a lot of Manitobans know this, that when you're on employment and income assistance or, or welfare and you start working, every dollar you make uh, at work is then uh, clawed back from what you get in employment and income assistance to the tune of 70 cents on that dollar. Makes sense in theory, uh, of course, because we want to support people going to work. But in practice, what happens is it means that people, if they end up in a, then a full-time minimum wage job, they might be making on par, maybe a little bit more in some instances than what they did on employment and income assistance. So it actually means that it's more of a disincentive to work. And if you're somebody who's dealing with trauma, maybe that you're also dealing with some, some mental health or other challenges, or maybe you're supporting kids, it might just be easier to choose the EIA system. And I think we really need to value and support that that's a hard choice people are making. But that, that welfare wall really sticks with me as an imagery of like trying to get out of this program when as soon as you start making some money, you get it cut back. Right. I get why people might choose a different option with all of the other challenges they're facing. So maybe just two examples to me that show that I think we got to be thinking a little bit differently about supports that actually work for people and economies that fill those holes in that leaky bucket especially for communities that maybe have been marginalized or, or disadvantaged. Michael, when you look at what you've seen so far, your involvement, again, just the fact that you're chairing uh, Make Poverty History Manitoban Coalition, what gives you hope for the future? Yeah, what gives me hope is, I, I mean, I've talked about it already a bit before, but I think there's a really amazing, interesting, broader social understanding of the impact of this pandemic on who it's impacted. And I think that's opened space for some of these conversations. And I'm just learning so much from people who are talking about an equitable recovery or the ideas of a just recovery. And I think it, there's, it's made space for that. Again, it, I, that's a, a huge caveat there is that it's also made space at a very, very challenging time where we've people have died and, and people have been very sick and families have been so economically impacted. So I'm careful not also to like feel <laughs> gleeful about the opportunity that it's provided because it's clearly been so challenging. But if that's any like one silver lining, so to speak, or maybe something that gives me hope is that we're considering how to recover in an equitable way. And something too, I haven't gotten into very much, but 
that's also given me hope is the ideas too that you know we have this other big crisis looming when we talk about the climate crisis some people talk about this as sort of like a you know a, a dress rehearsal for that which i think is both scary but also again i don't want to just diminish how hard this has been too for many people the covid particularly but that also maybe gives me hope in the ideas of addressing an equitable recovery in a way that also prepares us for a more climate resilient economy or a climate prepared economy which i think can be framed in both a scary way but to me can also be framed in a really exciting way where there's so much opportunity in terms of green jobs and employment for people who really need it and transition for people who are maybe working in in other sectors opportunities to maybe build up those kind of economies like i was talking about earlier filling those those gaps or those holes in, in first nations communities who are now building their own geothermal heat and uh, and renewable energy while addressing poverty in their community and one example of that is is aki energy i think it's such an amazing manitoba story that needs everyone should know about a social enterprise that works with and and is run by indigenous people that employs people in a community to install geothermal and other renewable energy projects it then employs people in that community over the long term who maybe were living in poverty before who knows maybe they were someone receiving that welfare check and now they are have a stable job are providing for their family are working in the community that they live in and their their heat bills go down and they're also helping us address the climate crisis so those sort of like win 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 scenarios to me that's a great story yeah our what's given me hope. Yeah. Michael, as we sort of wrap up our conversation, um, one of the things is, uh, you know, I can appreciate and some of the, as I said, I remind any, anybody that's listening is you've got a great make uh, poverty history in Manitoba. You've got a great website, lots of great information on there. And I spent some time going through it. So it's not, I don't mean to say, you know, what is the one, if, if somebody were to say, what, what one action item could somebody take? I mean, there's so many and there's a myriad. So this isn't to sort of say, what is the, if you're only going to do one thing, you know, do one thing. But if there was one step maybe that people could take, one step that they could stay to on this journey to try to help to make poverty history in Manitoba, what, what might that step be? Well, yeah, my natural inclination there is to say to contact your politicians. And I think it's so clear what all levels of government. So you're talking civic, provincial and federal levels? Yeah. And, you know, we offer ways of how easy ways to let you know who you should contact when it comes to a provincial or municipal, some messaging. So, of course, you need that help. But I think that that is going to be really crucial as eyes start to turn towards recovery, that maybe inviting your politician to some of these hopeful conversations or ideas around, hey, what are you thinking about and what are you doing to consider your role, whether you're an MLA or a councillor or a member of parliament, uh, in terms of supporting an equitable, a just and a green recovery for Manitoba, for Canada, for Winnipeg? So maybe it's a little bit less of like, a, why aren't you doing this and inviting a politician to have that sort of hopeful conversation. And if they're not maybe on board for that yet, trying to inspire some of that hope. And there's your collaboration, Michael, right there. I agree with you. I think that that's really you know, our conversations these days of uh, of finger pointing and why aren't you, I think, uh, tends to sort of build walls where, you know, you, you bring an opportunity to sort of bring people into a conversation or to see something. Uh, they'll better to have somebody see something from their perspective than be told, 
you know, what they should or shouldn't be doing. And I think, you know, that speaks volumes about your ability to, to collaborate. And, and I want to just end on a bit of a quote, if I could, which is not going to be a surprise to you because I got it off your website. But it was something that Nelson Mandela said in a speech about overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity. It is the protection of a fundamental human right, the right to dignity and a decent life. While poverty persists, there is no true freedom. You know, there's something that we can all learn from it. And I think the education that you have brought to this conversation is something I want to acknowledge and admire because I do think that it's the education of issues that ultimately is going to make change. Yeah, thanks for that quote. That probably is, uh, I should just like memorize that a bit more so I can quote Mr. Mandela. But yeah, I agree. And that, that education too is something we're definitely wanting to be so focused on. I think too, it'll be so crucial as we imagine and then build some new realities, new economies that we haven't quite conceived of yet. That to me, why is why education and collaboration is so important. If we're going to do that collective imagination of what could we have that's different, what do we need, absolutely need to have, I think that education is really step one. So Michael Barkman, thank you for spending some time on Humans on Rights. This has been a great conversation. I want to acknowledge what you have done, what you continue to do, and and I thank you as a member of the community for your actions and what you're doing. And again, I'll watch with great uh, uh, anticipation and awe as you continue to work your collaboration through this community to to do what you believe and and hope one day that we can make poverty history in Manitoba. Thank you. Thanks, Stuart, so much for having me and bringing your wisdom and knowledge to, to this. I'm looking forward to hopefully conversations in the future too beyond this. Thank you. Look forward to it. Thanks very much, Michael. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.